Well, good morning, everyone. It is, it is as Dan said, uh, it's good to be together worshiping our Lord on a Sunday morning. And uh, actually, he's, his uh, little talk with the kids about getting sent to his room uh, was actually a really good setup for kind of my sermon intro. It's kind of fun how the Lord ordains those sometimes. Um, we're calling this series Living Sacrifices because we're looking at the kind of sacrifices the Lord might call us to make in terms of living the kind of lives he wants us to live and the kind of, uh, you might say, discipline, spiritual disciplines that we can practice. And sometimes that does require making sacrifices. And today we're talking about solitude and and what does that look like? What can we learn from what the scriptures say? Um, But like I said, Dan's, uh, Dan's introduction was really good because what I wanted to talk to us a little bit about as we begin here is near the small town of Florence, Colorado, stands what is known as a supermax prison. I think we have a picture of that somewhere there. Should uh, Yeah, there it is. This provides the highest level of security possible for the most ruthless and hardened criminals in the United States penal system. There's a few different types of prisoners that are held at this facility. One of the main types is terrorists. So the 9-11 terrorists, they are serving multiple life sentences here. The Unabomber, uh, the Oklahoma City bomber, the, uh, I think, Atlanta Olympics bomber. A whole bunch of those types of terrorists are housed here. Uh, The other type are spies, people that have been double agents and betrayed United States government secrets. And then the third group is prisoners that have killed other prisoners or have killed guards. uh, And they they are sent here as well. Uh, Florence Supermax is essentially on permanent lockdown. All prisoners are confined to their cells for 22 or 23 hours per day. Uh, The cells are very spartan. Almost all the furniture is formed of pre-formed concrete. It can't be moved. There are no sharp edges. Uh, Windows angle upward. I think we've got a picture of a cell too. Windows uh, are constructed in such a way they're very narrow. They angle such that by looking out the window, you only see the sky. That way prisoners can't locate where they are in the facility and see from their window a possible way to escape. Uh, Exercise is taken outside for that one or two hours outside of the cell, always uh, isolated from other prisoners. Phone calls and visits are severely limited. Mail is censored in and out. No one has ever escaped from Supermax Florence since it opened in 1994. If you got out of your cell block, if you got over the razor wire, you're still in the wilderness of Colorado and the wolves might get you before you make it to civilization. Of course, this level of control and isolation prompts many concerns and criticisms of the well-being of prisoners kept in such a place as this. Right? There's all kinds of concerns about paranoia, schizophrenia, just total nervous breakdowns. And I think some of us have this kind of punitive idea about solitude and about being alone that this is, like Dan said, something that's maybe been imposed on us as a punishment. Not, not at this level, but we still might think, of, well, yeah, but like monks or hermits living in, in cells, off all by themselves. They don't talk. They even take vows of, of silence except for prayer. And they kind of live this Spartan lifestyle almost like they are in prison. Maybe we just have like unpleasant associations or or fears about being alone like Dan was saying maybe it's because we were sent to our room as a kid 
Maybe we just don't like being alone. Maybe that prompts some sense of anxiety within us, whether that's just the loneliness or, or being by ourselves with our own thoughts. You know, a recent study of, of people showed that people, when left alone in a room with nothing to do for between 6 and 15 minutes, would rather give themselves electric shocks than just sit there and do nothing. Something like 25% of women and 66% of men. That, that there's a difference there doesn't surprise me that much. But the fact that people would rather give themselves painful, like not harmful, but still pretty painful electric shocks, says something about our capacity to just sit and be by ourselves. And if you walk through a, a mall food court or any kind of public place like that, you see a lot of glowing screens and, and slumped shoulders and heads down, such that somebody like reading a newspaper or a book or just sitting there doing nothing, like you almost wonder, are they up to something? Like, why aren't they looking at their phone or their tablet like normal people? Even places like national parks. Now, there are Banff and other places, almost everywhere in the park is on the grid. So you've got people making phone calls and people taking not just selfies, but like posting them while they're doing it, streaming music from Spotify out in the wilderness. There are very few places left where you don't have at least the option to be connected if you want to be connected or entertained in some way. So what do we do? And what does Scripture teach us? The truth is, Scripture doesn't have a lot to say by way of like, here's a step-by-step how-to guide in how to do solitude. But that doesn't mean that there aren't clues or that it doesn't matter. Scripture doesn't really ever give us a step-by-step guide in how to have a church service either. But we know that it's important to meet for church. And so this is a similar area. Some of it, I think, is just, well, it's kind of a given. Solitude Space and time to be alone would have been a lot more accessible and and common and normal in Jesus' culture. And yet, even in our passage today, we're going to see that Jesus still had to be intentional about practicing it and had to make the choice to actually step aside and practice solitude away from people. So if you want to, turn to Mark chapter 1, and I invite you to stand as we hear from God's Word for our sermon passage today. Mark 1, we'll start at verse 29. Mark 1, verse 29. We'll read just a couple sections here. Mark 1, 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand, And lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sunset they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for this is what I came for. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is God's word. You may have a seat. 
So the description of Jesus' own practice of solitude and, and in some of the other passages that, that we might think of, it's usually very brief. It just mentions that Jesus did this, that he went away in order to be alone. Uh, here there's the added detail that he did so very early in the morning while it was still dark before anyone else was up. That's about it. And so our time today is going to be a little bit more maybe of a, what you might call a lesson than a sermon because the actual bit about solitude isn't, is only one verse. Uh, again, solitude, time to be alone, time to think would have been more normal, more acceptable, more assumed in Jesus' culture. Even though we don't hear about it a lot directly, it's probably because it was just a normal thing that people did. There are some important things we can glean, though, from the context and see what the circumstances were that prompted Jesus to take this intentional time away, kind of where it occurs in this little story. So first, Jesus' practice of solitude centered on prayer. And it's worthwhile to remember that in Jesus' Jewish cultural understanding, prayer would have certainly involved uh, scripture, probably scripture that was memorized, the kind of meditation, reciting of scripture passages, as well as other set prayers. Uh, The Jewish culture of Jesus' day had set times for prayer. Certain prayers would be recited, certain portions of scripture, um, you know, as well as the practice of the weekly Sabbath and the festivals. They had a much more kind of structured system maybe than we're used to. While Jesus certainly came to God as his father, I believe he would have done so within his own cultural context as he worshipped and prayed. And prayer and meditation would have been very, very closely linked in his understanding. Second, as I've already mentioned, Jesus sought this time of solitude early in the day. While it was still dark, Before anyone else was up and around, Jesus departed and went out to pray. That's not to say that that's the only right time to practice solitude, but it is kind of the most reliable if you're willing to make that sacrifice and get up before there are distractions going in the day either imposed on you or that you just get drawn into. It just so happens that that also happens to be kind of the hardest time because it requires that effort. Third, Jesus sought solitude away from others. This doesn't mean that you can't find solitude in a group that's sort of dedicated to practicing it. And I know some of you who are college students will know that that is a frequent practice in our college chapels. Cody will kind of direct people to disperse throughout the room and spend some significant time alone in in quiet reflection and prayer. And sometimes if you go to a busy place like a mall, There's all kinds of people there, but they're very absorbed in their own distractions and certainly not likely to bother you directly. But for many of us, it will still be easiest to practice solitude if we are alone, if we are away from others who might distract us, our friends, our family, our teammates, as well away from things that might distract us, electronics, other forms of entertainment. Finally, why and how he practiced solitude is very, very important to this passage. This time of intentional solitude away from people happened between two major episodes in Jesus' early ministry. More specifically, it happened between this very intensive episode of ministry and then the decision to kind of shift things and move in another direction, to take that ministry and kind of go on the road with it, as it were, into other places in the area. Now, earlier in the chapter than what we just read, if you were to read back a few verses. We find Jesus in the local synagogue. 
and he performs one exorcism. That is, he, he casts out a demon from a man who is possessed who happened to show up at the synagogue that Sabbath. So he's got one he was preaching, they were impressed, he does an exorcism, people are like, wow, that's pretty amazing. Then he goes to Simon Peter's house, and Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick with some kind of a fever, which in this time and place, that's a serious thing. Uh, she's bedridden, uh, Jesus takes her by the hand and heals her, so we've got one exorcism, we've got one, one healing miracle, but by sundown, the whole town is like breaking down the door. Once the Sabbath's over, they're there. Somehow they've all heard about it. And there's like hundreds of people probably. It says he did many healings and cast out many demons. As they say, that escalated quickly. And so what does Jesus do following this? Is he just, okay, well, miracles are the thing, I guess. Just hang out his shingle Jesus of Nazareth, faith healer? No, no he, he disappears as soon as he gets the chance and no one can find him. What's going on? Well, we might say he needs to rest or to use a contemporary metaphor, recharge his batteries, right? It went from one exorcism and one healing to a whole bunch and he's, he's depleted. That's likely true and certainly worth noting, but I don't think it goes deep enough. The real clue here seems to be what Peter and the other disciples say when they finally locate Jesus. Everyone is looking for you. Why? Well, I think they're looking for Jesus because they want to see some more miracles. They want to have some more needs met. There's still needy people that want, that want healing, right? They've, they've got, drawn their extended families in now. Like, we want some help. Where's Jesus? He can help us. Now think about it. it. It must have been pretty crazy to be there. Like, th- th- this is kind of weird, freaky stuff. Like, I don't know if anybody's heads were spinning round and round because they were possessed, but th- it wasn't just one exorcism. Like, it says he cast out many demons. Like, this is, this is spectacular, miraculous stuff. And many healings, it says, in the space of just a few hours. Jesus has gone out to a deserted place, I think, because he needs to get some clarity as to what his mission is. Spend some time with his father. Refocus. Get clarity on what he's doing. Does he set up shop as as a faith healer, an exorcist who who meets needs in spectacular ways? Is is that the mission? Because let's go over this, right? He he preaches in the synagogue and people are moderately impressed. They're like, oh, we've never heard anything like this before. Like, he's, he's preaching with authority. Then he casts out one demon and does one healing miracle and then people just start to lose their minds. Like, it would be easy for him to assume then that, well, the preaching, that's okay, but what's really getting the people out, what's really making the results and getting the numbers is the spectacular miracles and the healings and the casting out demons. We don't know exactly, precisely what happened in those hours of solitude that Jesus spent with his father. But let's think back to, to another deserted place where Jesus went. Mark doesn't record uh, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness in great detail. He just says that Jesus went to the wilderness. But Matthew and Luke tell us a bit about Jesus' temptation when he went out into the wilderness and fasted. And you remember the, the devil came to him and tempted him three times, right? 
And what, what were those temptations? What was the first one? I don't think they're the same order in both Gospels. But the first one was, did I hear bread? Yeah, somebody said bread. Take this rock and turn it into a piece of bread. What was the next temptation? Anybody? Fall down and worship him. Yeah, that was another one. And the, the other one was jump from the top of the temple and the Lord will miraculously deliver you. So out of three major temptations, two of the temptations that the devil tempted the Lord with had to do with using miraculous things in inappropriate ways, right? Turning this rock into a loaf of bread in order to use his miraculous powers that the Lord had given him to satisfy his own needs. And the other one was throw yourself down off the temple. The Lord will miraculously deliver you. Use a miraculous occurrence to make a spectacle. Both of those were inappropriate uses and focuses of a miraculous kind of healing ministry. And I think Jesus faces a similar kind of temptation in just a more subtle form here. The, the temptation is use, use miraculous healing and, and exorcism powers to just meet legitimate needs. And that seems like a good thing. But I believe in what happened between Jesus and his father in this moment of withdrawal and, and solitude was Jesus got clarity that that wasn't the way either. Yes, there were legitimate needs he could stay here and meet them. He could make that the focus of his ministry using, using the miraculous to draw the crowds. But look at what Jesus' response is. When Peter and the other disciples find him, everybody's looking for you, Jesus. And Jesus' response is, time to go. I've got to go preach in these other towns because that's what I came for, he says. And I think that's very significant. Jesus got the clarity that his mission, 